sermon today comes from 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 21. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, we do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light all the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of us may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as least of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with the love in the spirit of gentleness? Historian Garrett Fagan, he summarizes what Roman culture was like in the first century and how they viewed strength, how they viewed weakness. And I'm going to share this quote because remember, Corinth was a city that was a Roman colony. They were very much right in the thick of what Roman culture was. And listen to how this historian describes the values of strength and weakness in Roman culture where this young church was planted Ideas of universal human dignity were almost all but non-existent. And large swaths of population were seen as inherently worthless. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion, but of derision. More than most, Romans lionized strength over weakness. Victory over defeat, dominion over obedience, 
Losers paid a harsh price and got what they deserved. And resistors were to be ruthlessly handled. Roman politics became a ruthless game of total winners and abject losers. The drive to dominate and not be forced to bow before a rival was paramount. Now, I shared early on in, when we opened this study that, that that is a description of Corinth. It was, it was cutthroat competitive, and power was seen just as that. Victory, domination, strength. And what had happened is in this early young church in Corinth that people who had come to Christ took that view of power and began uh, unleashing it inside the church, which led to all kinds of trouble. And that's what Paul's writing into here, chapter four. This portion of his letter is writing to a young church that had lost an understanding of what kingdom power was in God's view. So we ask the question, how does the kingdom of God come in power? You'll notice that chapter, verse 20 of chapter four is really the conclusion of the entire chapter. When he says, when Paul says, the kingdom does not consist in talk, but in power. And Paul's gonna redefine here power, not according to the Roman culture of the first century, but according to the word of God, according to God. And I would argue that some of the aspects of that early Roman culture are alive and well today. It is a, basically a description of worldly power. So how does the kingdom of God come in power? How does the kingdom of God come in power? First, through a stewardship of Christ's return. Look at verses one and two. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So the emphasis here, overarching, umbrella over this entire passage is that God's power, the kingdom power, comes through stewardship. And a steward is a manager, okay? Not an owner. A steward manages a piece of property or something that someone else owns. What Paul's saying here is that these young Corinthians, the Corinthian church, they had become owners. And we see this in verses six and seven. Right? Look in verse six, they're acting like owners. Paul says, I've applied this concept of stewardship to myself and Apollos so that what? You won't go beyond what's written. And then verse seven, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Right there, you see what Paul's saying? You're acting like you own the gospel. And because of that, you're starting to tweak it and change it and tinker with it. You're stewards of the mysteries of God. You're not owners of the mysteries of God. You know, think about it this way. If you've rented a home versus if you own a home, right? When you own a home, what can you do? You can paint the inside of it whatever color you want. You can paint the walls whatever color you want. You can change the color scheme. You can change the bathroom, the kitchen. You own it. But if you rent a home, that's not the case, is it? Most of the time, you can't paint the inside. You can't change the colors, right? You're, you're just, you're, you receive something that you're renting that you steward. 
right? For the person that actually owns it. Let me give you another word picture of this. A pharmacist is required to do what? Administer, right, the medication that's been prescribed by the doctor, not to um, propose substitutes or improvements. Imagine if you went to your pharmacist to pick up a prescription from, from your doctor ordered, and the pharmacist says to you, hmm, I see your doctor ordered this, but let me tell you something. I have, I have a much better medication for you, right? Of course not. Of course not. What had happened is that the Corinthians began acting like owners of the gospel, owners of what is called here the mysteries of God. Now, what's the mystery? Or what, what's the mysteries of God that Paul's saying you're stewards of, not owners of? But one of the mysteries that this church hadn't quite figured out is that salvation was to be had by faith in Christ crucified. The offense of the cross that we talked about several weeks ago, that in Roman culture in Corinth, the, the cross was, was offensive. It was for nobodies and nothings in the world. And so the Corinthians who wanted to be somebodies started to distance themselves from the cross. And they had moved on to what they call this kind of theology of glory, right? To, to victory. Kingdom of God comes in power through stewardship of this mystery of God, this gospel of God. And it says this, that you are so bad that Christ had to die a horrendous, ruthless death on the cross. But you are so incredibly loved that Jesus Christ was glad to do that for you. Now that's the gospel. What happens when we minimize the cross, and by minimizing the cross, I mean this. Minimizing sin and moving away from sin to say, we've got it, we're okay. Or minimizing the cross by saying, what a wonderful example of how to be sacrificial. Listen, the cross is not an example. Jesus didn't die to show you how to be sacrificial. Can you imagine God the Father saying, let me give up my son so I can show them how to be sacrificial? No, Jesus died on the cross to accomplish your salvation. And so we don't move away from the cross or the offense of it. We don't make it more palatable by saying, wow, that, that sin, the bad is so offensive. We're gonna move away from it and move on to a theology of glory. The Bible's clear, cross and then glory. And the Corinthians had started to, to move away from cross into this glory life, this victorious life, this, this better life, this, this more powerful life, this wise life, all the things in Roman culture that were elevated. We're stewards. We're stewards of the mystery of God and this mystery that Jesus Christ was crucified in a most offensive way for us. So the gospel is the power of God. It's not the power of man. It's not the power of us to make it more palatable, to make it more relevant, to water it down. No, the gospel as received, we receive it. The gospel received that we proclaim as stewards, is the power of God. It's not the power of us. It's the power of God for salvation. Now, the second aspect of stewardship that we see in these verses, is it comes up in verses three to five. So, so stewards are 
are not owners. They're simply managers, but stewards have to give account when the owner returns for how they've handled whatever they've been asked to steward. And the way Paul gets at this, it's interesting. If you look at verse three, we learn that Paul is being judged. He's being judged by some group of people in this Corinthian church. By the end of the passage, he calls them arrogant people, but there are people in the Corinthian church who are criticizing Paul. They're critiquing him. They're judging him. And I love what Paul's response is in verse three. He says, it's a very small thing. It's a very small thing that I'm being judged, critiqued, criticized. It's remarkable. He says it's no big deal, but he takes it a step further. Look at the end of verse three. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Verse four, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. You know what he's saying there? Hey, I'm not aware of anything wrong that I'm doing, but that doesn't mean I'm not doing anything wrong. I don't even trust my own judgment of myself. And all that leads to this beautiful verse five. You see here, Paul is at a place of incredible freedom. He's been liberated. Look, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. You see, Paul is liberated from being overly anxious about what people think about him. And he's liberated from his own self-evaluation. He's completely free from the anxiety that comes with caring too much about what people think and caring too much about what you think of yourself because we can be incredibly hard on ourselves. I mean, think about the anxiety that locks us up over someone's criticism. When someone's critiquing you and criticizing you and judging you, you know the anxiety that can build up inside. Or, or if somebody is wrongly accusing you or unjustly accusing you, you know, and, and, and the, the truth is not out, you, you want to go, I, I just want to get the truth out. And you go on this hunt in your heart, everything's just locked up over it. And if, and if you're the kind of person that says, I don't care what people think, there may be a few of you, it's pretty rare, but I don't really care what people think. I'm not a people pleaser. Those cats have to struggle with that. I'm free from that. And then how often do you get anxious over your own self-evaluation? Write your heart on yourself. And Paul, what he's saying here is, I have found freedom from that. Why? Because there's one judge and there's one opinion that counts. The Lord Jesus Christ is judge. There's an audience of one. And what I love is in the end of, end of verse five, where Paul lands, when he says, then each one will receive his commendation from God, his commending, his praise from God. You see, that's where the freedom comes from for Paul. I've been liberated from this being overly anxious about what people think of me, their judgment, their critique, my own self-evaluation I don't trust because I simply trust the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ, who I am laboring for. And the opinion of God over you, if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, is that he is 
pleased with you, that you're holy and blameless in his sight. See, Jesus took judgment for you so that what's left for you is praise and commendation from God. You say, what's that have to do with kingdom power? Well, the kingdom power comes through the stewardship of Christ's return. That when you're stewarding Christ's return and you're laboring for an audience of one and you understand that God's, uh, God's opinion of you in Christ is holy and blameless and praise and commendation, then you're free from anxiety. You realize anxiety does not live in the present. Anxiety doesn't live in the present. It steals you from your family. It steals you from your workplace. It steals you from whatever it may be. And when you're free from that, you can be engaged. You can be present. You can experience kingdom power working through you, through you as a vessel, because you're working for an audience of one. You're laboring for an audience of one. So the kingdom of God comes in power through stewardship of Christ's return. But second, comes through stewardship of weakness. Stewardship of weakness. Paul elaborates on the, the problem in Corinth in verse eight. And I want you to read verse eight. Understand that he's using incredibly biting irony here. Look what he says in verse eight. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. You see, he's using self-descriptive self language of the Corinthians there. That's what they were saying. And the reason is Corinth was a place that had many gods, many gods, many cults, many religious expressions. And one of the things that would happen is when someone converted to one of these cults that worshiped some false god, but when they were converted to these cults, they would be overwhelmed with this sense of power and status. They would be kings. They'd be powerful. They'd be victorious. They'd be in the spirit. They'd be free. And that's what Paul's describing here. The Corinthians had, had, had become that. And then verse nine, notice when Paul says, we have become a spectacle to the world. What he's describing there is a, is a line of, of, of uh, criminals that would be marched into a Roman arena to die and be made a spectacle. So what he's saying is these, these Corinthians that are now kings and in authority, they're sitting in the luxury boxes of glory watching these poor little ones be led as a spectacle into the arena. And what he's saying is you Corinthians have become kings and you're powerful and you have authority and you're wise and you're sitting in these luxury boxes of glory around the Roman arena and you're looking at all the apostles, including me, and going, oh, woe to these apostles that are still struggling it out, that haven't quite figured out maturity and how the kingdom of God works and what it means to be mature in Christ. See, in Corinth, maturity was measured by the worldly power you assumed and the level of comfort you achieved. And so these Corinthians had had power, they're kings now, and they're comfortable. And so they get to sit there and watch little Paul struggle. And these apostles struggled. They hadn't quite figured out maturity yet. You see, the Corinthians had a premature view of glory. I said it earlier, cross, then glory. They had distanced themselves from the cross 
and they had moved on to this victorious life, this life free from discomfort, this life uh, of, of power and of being in the spirit with no suffering, right? That's what they had moved on to. And Paul says, let me, let me describe to you my life and how different it is. Look at verses 10 to 13. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You know what that is, the, the scum of the world? Of the world. That, that word literally means the, the, um, the junk that scraped off a pot or the dirt and the crud that scraped off a shoe. Paul's saying we've become scum of the world. See, describing here, Paul preached a, a power, an effectiveness that came through weakness, not the spectacular. The Corinthian church had associated power with spectacular displays. And Paul's saying, no, no, power in the kingdom of God comes through weakness. And then he, he says this ironic or this great paradox in verse 10, we're fools for Christ, but you're wise in Christ. See what the Corinthians saw Paul's life and the apostles' lives of homelessness and hunger and thirst, and they're struggling. They're being dishonored. And the Corinthians looked at that and said, how foolish is that? Remember that word foolish means ineffective. That's ineffective. That's a waste. How foolish is that? Paul says, but you're wise in Christ, right? You're honored. You're kings. You're powerful. You're not uncomfortable. There's never any suffering amongst you. See, he's just flipping the tables here. When in reality, everything that he describes in verses 10 to 13, that's evidence of God's kingdom power because kingdom power comes through that weakness. Martin Luther said it this way, God is not to be found except in sufferings and in the cross. One commentator summed this up and said it really well. Do some Christians seem secretly to despise or look down upon those Christians who seem always to be up against it. While we or others achieve an illusion of peace by disengaging from the struggle. See, that's what was happening. These Corinthians were looking down on Paul and, 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 and despising him because of the struggle. And they had freed themselves from that. They'd become mature. They'd become wise in Christ. Paul says, no. You've got a wrong view of power. Kingdom power comes through weakness. We boast in the cross. We glory in the cross. Not in a premature glory. Here's where I think the rubber hits the road on this for us. We get comfort and contentment confused. Let me explain this. I think whether it's consciously or unconsciously, we view increasing maturity in Christ 
as equaling increasing comfort. When in reality, the scriptures teach that maturity in Christ results in increasing contentment in the midst of continuing discomfort. In fact, if we were to uh, if you were to look at it on a, on a spectrum or a continuum of, of maturity in Christ, those two are headed in opposite directions. That as you mature in Christ, discomfort increases. And that as you mature in Christ, contentment increases, or to say it another way, as you mature in Christ, comfort decreases. As you mature in Christ, contentment increases. That we're called, that God's kingdom power right, comes through weakness. Have we subscribed to a gospel of premature glory that fails to boast in the cross and the sufferings that come with it? How does God's kingdom come in power? First, through stewardship of Christ's return. Second, through stewardship of weakness. And then finally, through stewardship of love through stewardship of love. Look at verse 14. I do not write these things, Paul says, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now this verse is dripping, dripping with hope. Here's why. Paul says, I'm not, now he's just come down hard on the Corinthians, hasn't he? I mean, he's used, he's used biting irony. He, he has come down hard on these Corinthian believers. And yet he says, I'm not doing this to shame you. You realize that's one approach to get people to change. That one approach to get someone to change is to shame them. Shaming someone into obedience. And we have phrases that get at this. When we say, you should be so ashamed of yourself right? Because you did something wrong. You should be so ashamed of yourself. Or here's another one. You're better than that. You're better than that. Right? The, the, the idea is to avoid shame, you do what's right. And if you don't do what's right, you're going to get shame on you. Paul says, no, no, I'm, I'm not writing this to shame you. And it's all too easy to do. Parents, you can shame your children into obedience. Bosses, you can shame your employees into obedience. Coaches, you can shame your players into obedience. Teachers, you can shame your students into obedience. It's all too common. Maybe you grew up in a home like that. Maybe you grew up in a church like that. Maybe you've been in a church like that. And let me just be really clear. The God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the scriptures does not shame you into obedience. Romans chapter two says that God's kindness, his love leads us to repentance. That God loves us as a, as a father, loves his beloved children. And if you have children, you know how this works. Right, at the height of your child's defiance, <laughs> At the height of your child's disobedience, you don't love them any less. Oh, they frustrate you. <sighs> but listen, if you didn't love them, you wouldn't get frustrated. You know what you do? You'd give up. You'd give up on them. 
You'd walk away from them. You'd quit being a father or a mother to them. That's what you do if you didn't love them. You get frustrated because you love them. So you admonish them. You point out what they need to do. Listen, God loves you as a father loves his beloved child. And God loves you so much that he's not willing to leave you where you're at. And that's where admonishment comes in. That's where admonishment comes in. So here's the question. Why does Paul make such an emphasis of this in verse 14? Why does he emphasize this? Because here, there's another problem in Corinth. You're getting the, the rhythm here? Lots of problems in Corinth. Listen, there's a lots of problems in our church as well, in every church, okay? We're sinners. But there's a problem in Corinth, and it's spelled out in verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You know what he's saying here? Listen, you have a bunch of guides in the Corinthian church. There are a bunch of people sitting on their thrones of glory, having figured out power, having figured out how to be wise, having figured out a comfortable life, a better life, a victorious life, that will point out all the things that you need to do to get there. But they don't love you. That's what he's saying. You get this picture of the Corinthian church that it's a, it's a church full of wise guides. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. Just do this. Just do that. But they didn't love. In fact, the, the most famous chapter on love in the entire Bible that gets read at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, falls in this letter. For that reason, this had become a church that had no love that had no love in it. And Paul says, listen, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel, Paul became a father that, that loved these Corinthians, even though they were a mess. Through the gospel, what is the gospel? That God the Father, because of his immense love for you, gave up his only son who he loved dearly so that you could be saved. That's the gospel of a loving father who loves his children and who loves them so much he's not willing to leave them where they're at. See, the gospel says this, God demands perfection from you. He demands absolute perfection from you. He has given you his law. We have the law, and he demands perfection. Here's the problem. You can never achieve that. You can never achieve that. As hard as you try. And so God, to rescue you because he loves you, said, well, I'm gonna send my son to obey the law perfectly in your place, and then to die a horrendous death to pay the penalty for you breaking the law. And that when you receive Christ, you receive a loving father and you receive the record 
of Christ. And so the problem in the Corinthian church is that it had become a place full of gods, but not fathers. Verse 16, Paul says, I urge you then become imitators of me. Now there's, there's a couple ways you can read this. You can read this as, okay, so Paul loved the Corinthians as a father loves a child. And so now we have to imitate that and love each other. You're missing a critical point here. Paul says, I became a father in Christ through the gospel. Paul, he didn't become a father through hard work, through self-will. It was through the gospel. And so what you see this picture of is, is Paul saying, listen, you got some problems in this church. You guys are a mess, but I love you. And here's why I love you, because my heavenly father loves me. And I know I'm a mess and I'm a sinner. In fact, Paul said he was the worst of sinners. And so imitating Paul means that every morning you wake up, you hear the voice of the heavenly father singing love over you, not shame. And that as you wake up every morning and in his word, you hear that song of the father's love over you, not shame. It will melt your heart of stone and God's power begins to work through you as you begin to love others in the same way. But it's not a moralistic go love how Paul loved. It's Paul received love from the Father and simply overflowed to others and that's what we're called to. But I'll tell you this, if you wake up every morning and you hear shame from God, you will wither and wither and wither. That's not the gospel. You wake up and you hear God's love over you. And as you hear God's love, it will melt your heart of stone so that you can love others. This past week, I was talking on the phone with a colleague of mine, doesn't live in Jacksonville. And we finished our conversation. And he said, as we were hanging up, he said, I love you. And it struck me, kind of stopped me in my tracks. And it wasn't because I didn't think this man loved me or that I loved him. It's that he said it. And here's what happens. We hung up and I, and I just sat there for a second. And when he loves me in the midst of my mess, <laughs> but it didn't end there. I quickly moved and the Holy Spirit used that to quickly move to the place of my heavenly father loves me in the midst of my mess. God's kingdom power comes through the stewardship of that love. Oh, that we could say to one another, you are a colossal mess and I love you. You're a mess. That's offensive, Keith. That's not offensive. It's realistic. We're broken. You're a mess, but I love you because that's God's message to you. He knows you're sinful. He knows you're broken, more so than you know it yourself. But he says, I love you, and I love you too much to leave you there. So where do we land? Kingdom power. How does God's kingdom come in power? It comes through the stewardship of a gospel that says, 
Jesus Christ is returning and his opinion's the only one that counts. He's the only just judge. And he took judgment for you. God's kingdom power comes through the stewardship of a gospel that says God's power comes through weakness, not through those who have it all together. And God's kingdom power comes through a gospel that says there is a heavenly father that loves you as a beloved child so much that he sent his only son to die for you and that he is committed in loving you to love you unto obedience. Let's pray. Oh, Father, the gospel never gets old. And yet it is so easy, Father, to get caught up in our world's view of power and improvement and advancement and maturity and to take that and apply it into the church. Father, forgive us for doing that. Would you help us by your spirit to believe what you say, that your power comes through an acknowledgement that Jesus is returning, that your power comes through weakness, that your power comes through love. Father, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, would we remember that Jesus, you were crucified in such an offensive way, something that was reserved for nobodies and nothings, that in God's immense wisdom and power through the cross, that we would be honored and that we would become kings and queens in your service. Father, as we continue to worship, would you prepare our hearts for this meal that you intend to pour out your grace through? And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.